Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, November 4th, 2008. I'm Terry Aranga with my guest, Dr. Derek McFabe. Dr. McFabe is Director and an Assistant Professor in the Departments of Psychology, Division of Neuroscience, and Psychiatry, Division of Developmental Disabilities at the University of Western Ontario. He is also the director and principal investigator of the Keeley Patchell Evans Autism Research Group at the University of Western Ontario. Dr. McFabe's background includes both basic and clinical neurological sciences. His expertise includes cellular mechanisms of intra- and intercellular communication in brain physiology and its implications in stroke, epilepsy, neurodegeneration, and neurotrauma, as well as neurodevelopmental disorders. He has a particular interest in the role of pre- and postnatal infectious processes in the etiology and behaviors of autism spectrum disorders. As a principal investigator with the Keeley Patchell Evans Autism Research Group, he is actively contributing to the development of novel animal models, as well as the role of genetics, biochemistry, and environment on the identification and possible treatments of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. McFabe's papers include Neurobiological Effects of Intraventricular Propionic Acid in Rats, Possible Role of Short-Chain Fatty Acids on the Pathogenesis and Characteristics of Autism Spectrum Disorders, published in Behavioral Brain Research, A Novel Rodent Model of Autism, Intraventricular Infusions of Propionic Acid Increase Locomotor Activity and induce Neuroinflammation and Oxidative Stress in Discrete Regions of Adult Rat Brain, published in the American Journal of Biochemistry and Biotechnology, and Intracerebroventricular Injection of Propionic Acid, an Enteric Bacterial Metabolic End Product, Impairs Social Behavior in the Rat, Implications for an Animal Model of Autism, published in Neuropharmacology. Dr. McFabe, thank you for joining us in the midst of what must be a very busy schedule. Thank you, Terry. I'm delighted to uh, be permitted to speak on your program. Well, Dr. McFabe, what is the Keeley Patchell Evans Autism Research Group? Well, about two or three years ago at the University of Western Ontario, what I would call a miracle happened. Uh, my interest is trying to bring together all the disparate views of autism and try to look at this rationally. And uh, we were doing a lot of basic research, and, and I, uh, I commend you on the mouthful of the technical papers. We'll try to talk more in English. But <laughs> later, um, I actually approached... Uh, uh, a person, David Patchell Evans, he was the CEO of Good Life Fitness Clubs, and, and, and which is a large group in Canada for um, uh, physical education. He himself is a daughter of Keely Patchell Evans, who is a, a child who had a severe regressive autism. He lets me tell this story, and I originally approached him for a small uh, seed money to try to look at this disease in a novel way. And what he said was, what do you really want to do? And, and a miracle happened, and through uh, his ingenuity and philanthropic work, we created a kind of novel thing here in Canada uh, to produce a nonprofit research uh, 
uh, group on into a center to look at the disparate aspects of autism under one roof. And uh, it's a remarkable story of an individual who's himself had to have personal suffering and, he, and looked out to try to help other people. And it's been a remarkable story over the last few years, bringing everyone together uh, under one roof to look at autism from all the different backgrounds, which I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss uh, in, in our interview. Well, thank goodness for that, and we're very grateful to him. So when you started studying the effects of propionic acid, it sounds as if you were trying to find a common link to disparate symptoms of autism. Absolutely. What what happens in autism is, and I'm sure you're well aware, you have a lot of reputable people looking at varying different aspects of autism. People are looking at um the possible increase of autism, or at least at the very least, it's an extremely common disorder. You're looking at the genetics of autism. People are looking at environmental factors. People are looking at immune and, as we'll talk about later, gut factors. And uh, trying to hear these also the most important people at the table are these families that tell these very credible stories of some, and I, and I caution some patients with autism, who apparently have normal or near-normal development and tragically regress. And then also, conversely, other patients that seem, from a variety of maneuvers that aren't, weren't particularly clear, seem to get better. So we thought, how can we bring together this groups of, and, and often, as you know, uh, disagreeing groups between genetics and brain and gut and function all under, is there something common uh, that we can all agree on that might be linking these, these different theories? So you studied propionic acid, and what is that, and where does it come from? Well, it's remarkable because it's a very simple molecule. It's sort of like basically alcohol, a little bit larger, but it's also a weak acid. And for such a simple molecule, it seems to have some very interesting properties. First is, you know, where do we get it from? Well, one of the main productions is the bacteria that we have in our gut. Um, when we eat, uh, such as carbs, we feed them, and then they produce as a fermentation product propionic acid, much by analogy. If we add carbohydrates to yeast to make alcohol, it produ they produce alcohol. So when we eat the carbs, we feed these bugs in our digestive tract, and they produce this stuff, which is also beneficial, but also has some very interesting properties. So particularly the bacteria of interest were the bacteria that are often increasing because of antibiotic usage. So these are the clostridial species. But interestingly, it's also propione bacteria, the bacteria that cause actually acne, but also live in our digestive tracts that we get from dairy products. So you have this linkage between dairy products and gut infections as well, but also uh, and indirectly um, feeding carbs. Now, the other interesting thing, and I, I caution this because, it, again, this is all circumstantially linked, but a plausible hypothesis, propionic acid is actually added to uh, refined um, um, carbohydrates. So if you eat breads or cheeses or such or refined dairy as a preservative. So it's, it's kind of an anti-mold compound. Whether the amounts are sufficient to cause this is a matter of conjecture. But you can sort of see that you've got a compound that gut bugs make, particularly when you eat carbs, but also uh, bacteria that come from dairy, but also actually the compound itself is directly uh, added to um, certain um, food foodstuffs to prevent them from molding. All right. Well, um, does this easily travel into the brain? Is there some connection between it being in your gut and it easily traveling to the brain, or does it get into the brain in another manner? 
Um, it gets in actually in both matters. Just as I mentioned before, it's kind of like alcohol, and some of us know maybe from personal experience that you can eat, drink alcohol and have profound effects on brain and behavior function. The compound is small, and it can, being a weak acid, it's not a, a severe acid, it has the ability chemically to kind of scoot in and out of barriers. It can come in through the lipid barriers in the gut barrier into the bloodstream and also can kind of scoot in from the blood-brain barrier into the brain. So there's this passive um, transport, but even more uh, importantly, there are specific receptors, technically called monocarboxylate receptors, that are in the gut, and they're also in the blood vessels of the brain, and they're also in the glee of the brain that actually actively take this stuff in. As a fatty acid, it's actually very important in smaller amounts, along with other fatty acids, lactate, or sorry, not uh, lactate, uh, butyric acid and acetate. These are the building blocks of making fats, which are also very important because the brain is largely composed of fats uh, as a building block for brain development. So I wondered, you know, could, could something occur where you actually have too much of a good thing where altered levels of these compounds for, or altered metabolism from a variety of sources could let it get into a higher level in the brain uh, in some patients? So you were trying to find a common link to disparate symptoms of autism, and why did you choose to study propionic acid, especially with regard to autism, well, as opposed to other compounds? Or Well, what it seemed to be is you hear a story of people saying, my child uh, with some children with autism uh, eats carbohydrates, and, and we'll only eat this stuff. It's almost to the exclusion of other things. Children say they'll only eat uh, the white of the bread or pizza dough or cheeses. And they say, doctor, you know, within a few hours, my child's behavior gets worse. He's bouncing around. He also has severe GI discomfort, largely by strange posturing or bloating. But you'd also see the children's behavior, the hyperactivity, the bouncing around, the self-injury becoming worse. And then families say, it seems like my kid is hooked on this food. So common parenting says if something's wrong with what you're eating, you know, take it away. And some families, as you've seen, indirectly through these stories of certain diets, low-carbohydrate diets or certain kinds of diets that seem to be omitting um, gluten-containing foods, which, again, not only contain gluten but contain a lot of carbs and also take, contain propionate, and casein-containing foods, which not only contain casein, but contain these bacteria and the, and the propionate as well. So I thought this was a common linking effect between behaviors getting worse, guts getting worse, and by removing these compounds, some of the brain fog that occurs with these children, uh, you know, improving from the stories of credible parents who know their kids. How do you tease out the effects of the gluten from the casein, from the carbs, from the propionic acid? This is the matter of, of, of what we're trying to look at because a lot of the stories looking at gluten and casein, um, they're in process, but people, there hasn't been a definitive major study that's actually proved that increase, increased gluten and casein will relate. People have thought that these compounds produce, and I'm sure you're well aware, compounds that look like opiates that may go to the brain, but a recent study didn't find these metabolized. It doesn't rule it out, but it said, could there be something else that could be causing these effects? So we thought at the first level, you know, when the million-mile journey begins with one step, you've at least got a compound plausibly linked to dairy, to, to uh, 
um, wheat-containing products, and uh, even more importantly, to gastrointestinal problems and gut infections that often occur with autism. Uh, when children seem to be regressing, and linked with a lot of environmental factors that you're well aware of, it's important to note there are other things happening at that time with kids, which also include infections. Uh-huh. All right. What are the acquired or genetic conditions? I know you mentioned metabolism before. What are the acquired or genetic conditions with involvement of the central nervous system and neurodevelopment where elevated propionic acid levels have been found? And this is a very good question because when we talk about people getting autism as to 1 in 150 getting autism, we have to say, well, how come 1 in 149 don't? So we said clearly genetics is, is, is a big part of autism, but you, all, you also have identical twins that don't have the same severity. But we said, okay, let's take a step back. Are there a bunch of diseases that we know about in clinical neurology where you, you can't, either genetically or acquired, that you can't get rid of it, so you'd be exposed to a higher amount. So what we looked at are diseases that are called propionic acidemia and methylmalonic acidemia and biotinidase deficiencies. There's a lot of genetic disorders where you can't get rid of these compounds, and also compounds like valproic acid that are uh, linked to autism with people taking epilepsy during pregnancy. All these genetic and acquired compounds or disorders collectively increase the, the levels of propionate in these populations. And their behaviors uh, look a lot like some features of autism. All right, and we'll pick up with this when we come back from break with Dr. Derek McFay. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we'll be right back. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. And we're back with Dr. Derek McFabe. And Dr. McFabe was talking about propionic acid and various conditions. And would you like to pick up with that, Dr. McFabe? Certainly. As we mentioned before, we were wondering if there are genetic groups that could be genetically more sensitive to this stuff and thereby brain that certain kinds of development would get higher levels um, from the sources we mentioned before. So collectively, when we go through the literature, we see a whole bunch of rare genetic disorders of metabolism uh, that collectively called organic acidurias, that um, a bunch of rare diseases in connection equal a relatively common disease that would have higher levels of propionic acid because you can't break it down. In addition, a very common toxin that causes developmental and delay with autistic features, alcohol during pregnancy, as in fetal alcohol syndrome, common compound like that uh, impairs your ability to break down um, uh, this uh, fatty acid. And also vitamin B12 and carnitine deficiencies, again, these are cofactors important in the metabolism of fats. Um, you have problems metabolizing it. And when you look at these disorders, I don't want to be oversimplistic and say propionic acidemia is autism, but you do see these children can't get rid of these compounds at all or very little. And what you see is severe developmental delay, social problems, seizure, and repetitive movements, often coexisting with gastrointestinal function. And they often get worse. Some get worse right after birth, but some actually get worse years later, often with an antecedent infection, again, postulating some bugs that make more of this. So you see there is a possibility of behavior similar to autism existing, at least affecting brain and behavior and gut function from increased exposures of these fatty acids. And these were interesting to us as they are potentially treatable uh, conditions. So how have these been treated? What's very interesting is the treatment for them has some similarity to the empiric treatment by some doctors that treat um, autism with gut factors. So the first thing they say with kids with this disorder is, makes sense, don't eat it. Don't tend to eat compounds that have this stuff directly in it, as in certain cheeses and usually bread products. They cut down the carbohydrates as well, and they also try to use antibiotics to get the bugs out of the gut that produce this. And they also use probiotics to try to keep good bugs in. And they also give B12 as well. And you find improvements in some of these patients. When we look at the literature of the genetics of these disorders, as I said before, you have these severe disorders where you can't get rid of it. You also have side groups of the genes of these disorders where 
you sort of can get rid of the compound. You're a, what we would call in neurology a partial metabolizer, and these are often underreported. When we look for these diseases, we tend to only look at it at birth when a child kind of has a, a, a metabolic crash a few hours after birth. But I was also wondering if people may not be looking at these as much as they should and looking for minor versions of these disorders, which is something of interest to us as well. So when you take all of these rare disorders, you mentioned rare disorders, do they add up to the uh, epidemic of autism that we see? Well, again, um, that's our hypothesis. It's up to us to try to examine that. But it's certainly a plausible argument in that you see if you have a whole list of disorders where you can't metabolize these short-chain fatty acids and others, don't want to be oversimplistic. It's, again, we're working on a way to understand things conceptually. You that have similar features to autism and have the idea of getting better and getting worse somewhat, it, it, it is an interesting way to start because now you're linking genetics, right, with environment and diet so far in a plausible explanation. But we're not there yet, but that's something, certainly what we're looking at. You had mentioned genes. Uh, Does propionic acid affect gene expression? That's an excellent question because, you know, you have the hardwiring of genetic disorders, but you also have this excellent work looking at epigenetics, the turning on and off of genes, like a dimmer switch, um, relating to autism. And what's very interesting is these compounds directly go and switch on and off uh, really key genes that have to do with brain development, immune function, and uh, neurotransmitter function. And some very interesting work, and also actually interesting work in our collaborators, um, Ed Lagama and Bistra Nankova at New York Medical College, with tissue culture studies have shown one gene of interest is called CREB. And, and you can think of CREB kind of like the, con the contractor for your, what a contractor is to your house on orchestrating a house development. This does to your brain. It's involved in switching off genes with learning and memory and brain development and addiction, which is very interesting. So you hear, here you have a simple thing that's in the diet and gut bugs make that can turn on and off a lot of very interesting genes important uh, directly or indirectly in brain development or, or autism. Would you classify probiotic acid as having neurotoxic effects? Well, this is also interesting, too. A lot of things that can be bad can also be good for you depending on the dose. What, what is known about the compound is it actually tends to have more effects on the glia than the neurons. The glia metabolize it more, and they have this working relationship with the neurons between metabolizing it and then giving metabolites to the neurons for, for development. But what we do know that there are, so there are also um, developmental and transmorphic effects with the compound that I'll go into later. But in addition, it is true that they're binding to certain key elements in, in, in metabolism in the citric acid cycle that the compound can put a ranch in fatty acid metabolism and can be a direct toxin. When we're looking at neurotoxicity in autism, we also have to remember it's not a clear neurodevelopmental disease and that these kids, at least the ones we've looked at, sort of have a steady state. They're not getting worse like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. So we want to look at a compound that alters brain function without causing severe degeneration. But it is a key compound that can cause both beneficial and hazardous changes in both 
cell types in the central nervous system. Also controls, in, in the neurons, controls neurocytoskeleton, uh, which has a lot to do with the structure of neurons and their electrophysiological properties. Now let's please talk about your findings, what you saw when you administered infusions of propionic acid to adult rats. Let's start with the outward behaviors. Yeah. So the way to do this for the work we've done, it's a nice theory, as we spoke before, but you've got to do the science. So the main thing is is put this stuff into an animal at a variety of roots in, co in concentrations that are sort of reflective of these weird disorders and see what happens. So what we were surprised, initially we put it in tiny amounts directly into the fluid of the brains of, of adult rats, and to our surprise, within two minutes, the animals started becoming hyperactive, doing things over and over and over again. So our grad student, Jen Hoffman, uh, did this very excellent work showing hyperactivity and repetitive behavior. And our other grad student, Sandy Schultz, in collaboration with Peters Kane and Ossenkopf, put this stuff in and found the animals actually ignored each other. And then what is interesting in both these studies, within 20 minutes, which is, remember this is a metabolite, it's a fuel source, once the compound was you know, presumably broken down, the animals stopped this repetitive movements and hyperactivity and socially ignoring each other and came back surprisingly to become normal. And we used other compounds that are similar in structure to these propionic acid as a good control, and we didn't find the same effects. So at least plausibly, you see repetitive, hyperactive, and, and, and social behavior, which is reversible, which also reflects to this idea of symptom worsening and improving in some of these patients in relation to gut or diet. How about brain tissue, neuroinflammation, brain activity, and the overall central nervous system? So as, uh, in order to make a good model, you've got to put together other models. So the next thing we wanted to do is say, okay, does the brains of animals exposed to propionic acid look anything like the brains from imaging studies, such as that with Martha Herbert, that show um, white matter changes, and the excellent work by um, Carlos Pardo at Johns Hopkins that looked at the, the brains of patients who've deceased with autism and found an innate neuroinflammatory response of glia and microglia remarkably looking like patients with uh, chronic AIDS, which in, are interesting, too, because of their gut problems as well and, and, and suppression. So what they found was this very specific kind of innate neuroglial activation, primarily in limbic structures and white matter. When we did this, the staining on the brains in our model, we found virtually identical changes. Actually, very interestingly, in the absence of severe neuronal loss, remember when I mentioned before about brain cells not necessarily dying in autism being altered. And we also found this area, as I said, like an inflammation, literally a swelling of the non-neuronal component in the white matter. And we also did that Krebs test, that gene that turns on other genes, and we found, again, that the compound caused alterations in the brain. So you've got similar behavior. You've got similar brain pathology. The other thing we did in the animals when they were alive is we measured their electrical activity in various brain regions, those concerned with epilepsy, limbic structures, and neocortex. And then we also looked down deep in the brain in the basal ganglia. This is the area of the brain that has to do with repetitive behavior, obsessional behavior, and tics. And we found that the compound caused electrical changes very similar to what's seen in the underappreciated incidence of epilepsy in patients with autism. They're hard kids to examine, but there's emerging studies showing they have a high incidence of epilepsy with them, although I should note that epilepsy doesn't 
cause the autistic behavior, but again, you see a consistency. We also found that if we give the little compound and wait a little bit and then give it again, each time we gave the compound, the response was greater. So the brain became sensitized to repeated exposures of this compound, presumably from uh, either dietary or infectious causes from the gut. All right. This is so interesting, and we're going to pick up with this when we come back from break. Uh, Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Derek McCabe, and Dr. McCabe, we're talking about sensitivity. Yes, um, as I mentioned before, we sort of give this compound and the animals have these very strange behaviors that are reversible and it only lasts for about 20 minutes. But then one of our studies, and again, these are all published in our papers. You can get them from our website as well. But if you wait, we give it a little bit. We wait a week. We give it again, again, directly into the fluid of the brain. uh, The behavior gets worse. We wait another week. We give it again, the behavior gets worse. So in layman's terms, the brain remembered it was exposed to this compound, a technique we call in neuroscience is kindling. So each of these 
uh, shows that there are permanent neuroelectrical changes of whatever reason, which we're studying, but at least for a primary experiment, there's a possibility, the, the, the converse of this is you'd be, if you're re-exposed to this compound, you can get a given response with less of an exposure than someone else. So again, this is an idea of partial sensitivity to, to these fatty acids. And what did it do to, what did the propionic acid do to glutathione, glutathione peroxidase activity, or other oxidative stress markers? Right. Why is that significant? It's very important in that, again, we're trying to bring together different groups. We've brought behavior, electrical activity, pathology, a plausible theory with linking diet and gut and genetics. But there's some very interesting work actually done by Jill James and Avin Ved Chowan, um, who basically showed this oxidative stress in autism, which is kind of like thinking that if there's impaired metabolism, it's like having an engine that doesn't work so well and you've got heat and, and, and stuff produced. There isn't directly heat, but there's what you see is damage to uh, proteins and lipids because of free radicals and also the free radicals like nitric oxide that are produced by microglia. So what we did as well, we said, look, that's, this is excellent work. Does our model fit? So we took brain sections from different areas in these animals, homogenates, with my postdoc, Karina uh, Rodriguez-Capote, and we said, let's see what happens. We found that there was high levels of oxidative stress. The second thing we looked at is this buzzword is glutathione. Glutathione is kind of the main brain cleaner upper of a variety of environmental toxins and metals. And glutathione has been found down in, in patients with autism in, con in conjunction with the oxidative stress. Our study, consistent with findings in patients, found glutathione was reduced. So what you have is that now if your glutathione is down from, from these fatty acids, you now can be sensitive to a very broad variety of environmental toxins. So certain compounds, certain drugs, environmental metals, so at one level, we could say gut infections and environmental toxins may not mix. So this is another example of saying why would you have some populations sensitive. And again, it's again trying to bring together the desperate views of autism, like looking at the blind man and the elephant. Is there something common? So behavior, path, EEG, plausible theories, oxidative stress seem to at least link in this model. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think it's very good that you are... Uh, comparing and contrasting and testing your uh, theories against those uh, the findings of other researchers and it's, yes, it's it's absolutely essential. These are great people looking at things, doing good work, and and in our small way, your neighbor to the north is trying to to put these different groups together, possibly under a similar environmental factor. So you've been talking about how elevated propionic acid. Um, levels are uh, related to, to metabolism. Um, how do they interfere with metabolism or mitochondria? Well, as you rightly spoke, one of the big interesting things in autism are these mitochondrial disorders, the energy storehouse of the cell. And you can see brain that has the most requirements for energy would be most susceptible, and particularly those areas of the brain that have to do with some um, repetitive behavior and, and social behavior. So people have found also genetic abnormalities in mitochondria, but what we actually found as well, that this propionic acid, this short-chain fatty acid from diet and gut bugs, actually it puts a wrench in mitochondrial metabolism. It, technically, it binds to coenzyme A, the main place where fats go into the mitochondria, you know, to burn fuel. 
And in addition, it binds to carnitine, the shuttle, if you will, that brings all these fatty acids, again a fuel source, into the mitochondria to produce ATP. So now, in layman's terms, as I say to our students, it's like this, this gut bug is pr producing a wrench to modulate mitochondrial function. So if you had a, any other disorder of mitochondria, genetic or acquired, you could also see how this thing could directly make it worse, environment on genetics, right? At, not only at the, at the cell nucleus, but also the mitochondria. You've talked about the gut. We know that a lot of the immune system is in the gut. You've talked about the brain, and we know that that has a lot to do with neurotransmission. Are there other ways that elevated propionic acid levels uh, dysregulate immune function or neurotransmission? Yeah. Uh, what's really interesting with this stuff, as I said, the more we looked at it, it, it started to fit because now we found that there are direct receptors on cells in the immune system for these short-chain fatty acids propionic acid, butyric acid, and acetic acid. So these things actually turn on. We don't know everything about it, but what we do know is the first line of defense, the innate immunity, the macrophage, which is also the microglia in the brain, have specific receptors for the fatty acids. So the thing compound almost works like a hormone. So it turns on calcium and, and activates the cell and makes the cells go toward areas where the fatty acids are which is, makes sort of sense. If you've got a gut infection making these things, it would make sense that the immune system would go down to the gut. But this can also be a problem if the fatty acids are elevated in the brain. So that's one level where it turns on. It also has major effects on cytokines, and we're, we're working on this right now, but what is in the literature, it does turn on a lot of these intermediate things that are in the systemic system, gut, bloodstream, and also work indirectly to the central nervous system to turn on inflammation and, and also work with brain development as well. The other interesting thing the compound does is it, it actually shuts down what compounds called gap junctions. They're like tubes between cells where cells talk to each other, very important in the gut, very important in, in terms of motility in the gut, and very important in brain development. So this thing also closes these things off. So now you have a compound that is doing a lot of very interesting things common to people looking at the immunological effects uh, of autism. Now, the other effect, as you mentioned, was neurotransmission. Also, the compound propionic acid turns on um, a lot of very interesting neurotransmitters involved in autism. It promotes dopamine release. Dopamine is important in repetitive behavior and aggression and being hooked on something, wanting things. It turns on synthesis and release. It actually turns on encephalins in the brain. Mm. Again, I, I done from tissue culture studies. So this is the, the desire of want. And it also changes glutamate as well and gap junctions in the brain, as I meant. So one of our hypotheses is here's this bug in a gut that's producing compounds, and it's producing things to control brain function to make you eat what it wants to survive. Mm -hmm. So it says, hey, brain, I'm a bug down here. Go to the brain. Make the brain want me. Turn on dopamine and enkephalins. Again, very similar to the theory of, of um, caseomorphins, uh -huh. but it's another mechanism that at least is supported in the literature. It explains how the kid, the child would want to eat this at exclusion of all else, mm -hmm. and the behaviors get really worse when the foods are a lot of empiric studies with the patients, when the foods are immediately taken away, the children's behavior gets worse, almost like a state of withdrawal. So, again, it starts fitting in 
with immune and neurotransmitter function as well. And this is an area of research with us as, in addition to the work I already mentioned. How fascinating. I think parents feel guilty a lot of the time taking away foods that their kids seem to really love. It's like yeah, it's like whatever your child likes so much, that's exactly what you need to take away. And I know parents can end up feeling guilty about that, but in the end it really helps the child. And I, I completely agree. And the other uh, um, add-on to this is when we start through an animal model to ethically look at the reasons why, it's going to help us in the long term explaining some of the behaviors and worsening and paradoxical worsening in some cases where the child may be improving. But here in an animal model, you can rapidly look at all these things very quickly and rationally and being able to ultimately develop and and refine some of the empiric things that families have been doing to try to improve their quality of life of their kids. Mm -hmm. So everything we've just been talking about, uh, immune function and uh uh, glutathione peroxidase activity and all these things. These are things that you have found in an animal model. Absolutely. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And and there's more. We're doing a lot of collaborative work through tissue culture, but we started in the model. We originally started with behavior because it's a disease of behavior. And uh, as I said, we we expose animals to this and related compounds pre and postnatally, male and female. And this is the kind of way we can rationally look in our multidisciplinary group uh, of behaviorists such as Dr. Ossenkopf, Dr. Kane Cavaliers, Elizabeth Hampson, who's a male-female uh, expert in hormonal development in brain, and Fred Possmeyer, and a biochemist. Interestingly, he was the one that developed um, um, surfactant for preemies, so he knew a lot about oxidative stress. This is the kind of thing we're trying to bring together and, and centered initially on the animal model, but obviously extrapolated to the it's a patient. But it's neat that you can see it in the animal's behavior and also see the underlying reasons for it when you examine the physio physiological changes from the propionic yeah. acid. Uh, we, we feel excited about that. And again, we, 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 you know, we want to do things with the peer-reviewed system. That's the main way. We then have the ability to look at controls and look at a whole bunch of different compounds that sort of look like these compounds to try to tease out the mechanisms for possible you know, um, empiric treatment uh, of patients and prevention of spread if there are infective factors involved. Very important. We're going to go on to talk about what propionic acid does to the gut, for example, to gut motility. And we may need to go to a break, but let's get started. As we mentioned before, this compound does all these effects on gap junctions and tubes and neurotransmitter systems and immune function. What happens up in the brain happens right down in the gut, what people may not appreciate. The, the most hostile environment is not necessarily out there. It's all the bacterial populations, incredibly complex in the, in, in the um, gastrointestinal system. So you have to have a regular immune function not too high or not too low to, to promote these barriers. You also have a nervous system down there, the enteric nervous system. So the same thing in inflammation in the brain happens down there as well. And also very interestingly, this compound, and we'll probably get into it later, the bugs that make this compound, anyway, we, we do know that it affects the neurotransmission and gap junctions of the smooth muscle in the gut which change the motility of the gut and then produce what we think is these cramping behaviors of of, of intermittent uh, diarrhea and constipation and nausea that looks like almost acute appendicitis that you see particularly in this subset of patients with regressive autism and GI symptoms. And we'll talk more about this when we come right back. 
Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virostop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. JackLalane.com presents Jack LaLanne Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLanne and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLanne, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLanne Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're talking about propionic acid and gut motility with Dr. Derek McFave, peristalsis, and I think we were also thinking about serotonin release. Yes, as well. Again, this compound does some very weird things to gut motility. It kind of gums up the normal smooth peristaltic effects. It also um, causes abnormalities in the neurotransmitter systems. And of, um, I forgot to mention previously, uh, this thing turns on serotonin release not only in brain and the gut. And serotonin has a lot to do with uh, directly on the the, the um, mast cells, the cells that line the gut, it, it's a, another way to turn on inflammation. And it may explain some of this hyperserotonemia, which we, like higher alter, increased serotonin that we see in gut and bloods of some of these patients with autism. So at least circumstantially it fits. You were talking about gut bugs, and when I think of gut bugs, I think about clostridia. So what's the relationship between propionic acid and clostridia or clostridia and autism? This was a main interest of mine because and I'm not taking away all the excellent work. We hear the story of children regressing at a certain time, and people say, I went to the doctor, I, I, I got my shots, other things happened, my child regressed, sometimes within a day, sometimes within a month. It's important to realize that a lot of other things are happening at that time. Kids, We all agree all the kids are going to the doctor's office. I don't want to be alarmist, but we're... We also know that who are these kids in there? They're having a lot of antibiotics for the routine, routine um, upper respiratory kind of effects, ear infections, that not only affect the bugs in the upper respiratory, upper tract, that also affects the, some of the bugs in the gastrointestinal tract. So when these good bugs go down, these other opportunistic bugs that seem to be resistant to these general antibiotics move in. And one of those is clostridia. 
And this has become a real problem in the adult populations, both in both our countries. Uh, there's a lot of outbreaks in Montreal and the prairies here that we're looking at. And they're mostly people that are older and they don't have the good bugs in them because they've been on major antibiotics for other disease. The main one are these clostridial bugs. They produce a lot more propionic acid than others. I don't want to be alarmist but because other good bugs make it too. But these bugs are particularly interesting because you have severe uh, gut disease called pseudomembranous colitis that I mentioned, but you also have mild carrier states. And these particular bugs also affect the lining of the intestinal tract all the way through, particularly also in the mid-gut. And they can make the gut more inflamed, they make it leakier, and they also produce more propionic acid. So at least there could be a link. Sid Feingold out in California found regressive autisms. I should mention these bugs are really difficile is from the French, difficult to find and difficult to treat. But he found variations of clostridial species similar to Clostridium difficile in patients with autism aggressive autism. And again, here's a plausible link to what's going on. So it, again, it's a, it's a hypothesis, but it's, it's linked on what has been seen with some of the patients. So, you know, what can happen is, you know, one hypothesis is children that have high amounts of antibiotics, possibly because of another genetic disorder where they're more prone to having infections, the side result of that is, is it could be start to alter gut flora. We certainly do see in a lot of regressive autistics more clostridial species and less of the bugs of lactobacillus and, and uh, bifidobacter. Also, you have families that are at risk. If mom is on a lot of antibiotics in pregnancy, uh, mom was on a lot of antibiotics just before birth, um, maybe for a beta-hemolytic strep infection, so the normal bugs that come from passing through the, the birth canal didn't get inoculated into the child. You also have children maybe that didn't breastfeed or children that had other problems and they were sick and they had to be in hospital for a period of time for the first few weeks where they weren't getting the normal bugs, the good bugs, to keep these clostridial populations down. And these are the groups that we're starting to think of because when I've talked to a lot of these families, a lot of these presume risk factors that would tend to promote these bugs seem to pop up. How do physicians treat this? The, the true Clostridium difficile, it's really hard to treat. But what they do is they give a very powerful antibiotic, usually flagellar vancomycin, and they uh, immediately do that. And then afterwards, they are this is an thing in evolution. They treat probiotics to try to get good bugs in. And we're at our infancy looking at that. And But the difficult thing with some of them, and uh, there's anecdotal reports that that has been done in some autistics, and they originally seem to improve, but then they get worse. The difficult thing with these bugs is, one, they may have spores. They're kind of hibernating versions, and the spores are kind of all around in hospitals, maybe in other places as well. And you can reinfect. You can reinfect from contacts, and you can reinfect um, from the spores that are already in, in, in the child. The other difficulty with the treating patients with these antibiotics long-term, which I caution, is that you can get resistant strains of everything, and, we have, and people could die from a toxic megacolon. So we, everyone in infectious disease is starting to take a hard look at clostridium infections, and I would encourage people looking at it in light of neuropsychiatric diseases like autism as well. So there is a potential of treatment. Another thing that would be important is the prevention of, you know, 
catching it in the first place because of the uh, it could be a matter of hygiene. Did you want to mention anything about family histories or Absolutely. What we're finding of interest is you do hear certain cases and when you look at patients with regret of autism a lot of them. Again, it's a family of diseases. I'm mostly talking about the ones that have the gut problems. A lot of the family members have gut problems too. So it may be presumable that they, these patients have altered flora as well. The other thing is the idea of, and again, we're talking basic science here. It's important not to jump, as I said, because people could say, go on these antibiotics forever and you can have more damage than good. But, you know, to, to see the, the, the flora and symptoms of other family members may be very important in light of, you know, think of a first contact like a mom never be more than arm's length for a child with ASD and doing all the care, you can see how the possibility of cross-infection could occur. Mm-hmm. And what we have, to, again, in our small way, our animal model provides a rationale to actually look at that with facilities that are already available in traditional infectious disease and gastroenterology. I'd like to take a few moments to just let our listeners know about some links uh, for uh, those who are interested in your work or for participation in future research studies. You can go to Autism Canada for online videos or downloads of Dr. McFabe's peer-reviewed papers uh, at www.autismcanada.org forward slash storygreen.htm. Uh, you can also go to uh, Canadian American Research Consortium, and this is for uh, links for patients interested in participating in studies at www.autismresearch.ca and Dr. McFabe's website at psychology.uwo.ca forward slash autism dot htm. Well, Dr. McFabe, uh, I want to thank you for sharing all of this fascinating information about your meticulous research that links many aspects of autism. Do you have any closing remarks? Yes, I want to thank you for giving me the time to speak. And I think, again, what we're trying to do here, you know, in our small way, we're trying to bring together all these different groups that, as you know, may have a lot of heated discussions. But one thing everyone agrees is we're all geneticists, biologists, GI guys, behaviorists, metabolics guys all together want to be able to help these children and be able to do it rationally. My Hippocratic oath says first do no harm. So this is why we're taking something back and we have to recreate. It seems like why, you know, I'm not in love with animal models, but this is really, and I must stress this, the only way that we can look at this very rationally and develop the background to be able to have the ethics to do these studies rationally. We can look at the interactions with these environmental factors in these animals within weeks. That would norm, would take years. And I don't mean to be critical, but when people are saying, let's change regimes, let's change certain things and see what happens, you're, you are not intentionally causing a risk to look at something with, with the next generation of children. And so by doing this basic science work, what we've also brought to to the table are the families who have told these reputable stories of their kids getting worse and getting better, and I think these people have to be at the table too, which is why I set up this multidisciplinary group in Canada that has also expanded across great people who have helped me in, in your country as well. Thank you. Very good, and thank you, and we'll be interested to talk to you again soon about any further studies that you're involved in. 
to our listeners next week. My guest will be Dr. James Partington discussing the therapeutic verbal behavior approach. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.